Well, let's turn again in our Bibles to the Gospel according to John, which we've been uh, studying together, and we're reading in John's Gospel, chapter 19. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find the passage on page 1088, 1088. Uh, We've been looking at this chapter uh, with words from the Apostles' Creed in the background. Uh, He uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And uh, in the first of that series earlier on in the month, we noticed that instead of this chapter beginning with, I believe, it actually begins with Peter saying, I deny. But it's in the face of that denial Uh, that John goes on to expound to us these uh, marvelous events of the gospel in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, we've come uh, now to the end of verse 16 of chapter 19. So, they took Jesus, and He went out bearing His own cross to the place to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, it's a form of Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. So, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. Then He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to His own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, 
So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's an extraordinary fact that more books have been written on these verses that we have just read. More poetry has been written on these verses that we have just read. More movies have had this scene in them. More songs have been sung on this scene than anything else that has ever taken place in the entire history of the world. And it ought to strike us as 21st century people at first sight as strange, because all that's happening here is the crucifixion of one man in the middle of two. This is not an ethnic cleansing. This is not the Holocaust. This is not the First Great War. This is not any event in Roman history in which, as uh, one of the Roman authors said, they make a desert and then they go and call it peace. This is just the crucifixion of a carpenter from Nazareth. But for John, the author of this gospel, it's the most important event in the world. And the strange fact of history in the last 2,000 years is that no matter what people have thought about it, it has been treated, described, sung about, written about, moved about more than any other single event in the entire history of the human race. And no one has done that better, even just from the human literary point of view, than the Apostle John who gives us here his description of the crucifixion. John is the great portrait artist of the New Testament. Um, you know, you go and you look at a painting in the art gallery, and if you're like me, you, you like it or you don't like it, you, you're struck by the skill or by the beauty or whatever. But if, uh, if someone comes along beside you, if you go on a trip with Robbie McMillan maybe and go to the art galleries, he'll probably say to you, and do you see that? This is what that means. Do you see this? Same with great pieces of music. Most of us like them or we don't like them, but the, the, the composer, uh, the, the expert is able to say, now did you, did you notice this and did you notice that? And John does that in his gospel. Actually, it's the reason he, he may be the first person in the Christian church to have been called the theologian. That's what St. John the Divine means. And he was called that because the early Christians realized there was a, there was a profundity, a, a depth, a density to the way in which he could describe what took place on the cross that you would find nowhere else. 
Uh, he had, it was as though his, his lenses, his reading lenses had so been crafted that he could actually see and understand what was actually happening. And then in his gospel, point it out to us and say, do you, do you see this and, and do you see that? Because this is the heart of what Christians believe is the good news of the gospel. But from any other point of view, it's not good news, it's a tragedy. From any other point of view, it's, it's not significant, it's, it's about an insignificant individual. It's not the greatest tragedy that ever took place in the history of mankind, it's just the, as these Roman soldiers would have assumed, it's just another duty to crucify some Jew who's got into trouble. And what John is doing, and his gospel is written for Jewish people, but it's also written for Gentile people, is he's, he's helping us stand before the cross, and he's saying, do, do you see that? Let me, let me just unpack it for you for a minute. And there are too many ways in which it would be possible to do this uh, in this relatively brief chapter that we can just look at some of them this morning. But I want, first of all, to make sure that we understand the clues that John has already given us in this chapter, because they're very important, and they're important because they don't actually appear in the other Gospels. The first is the words that Pilate speaks about Jesus when he brings him out. Hey that for, for some strange reason, most of us know, even in Latin, ecce homo, behold the man. So, this is, this is something that struck John forcefully, that this, uh, this Roman governor pointed the Jewish people to Jesus and said, behold the man. And the other thing that actually emerges here also but in a different way, is in chapter 19 and verse 7 that the accusation brought against Jesus was that He said He was the Son of God. He said He was the Son of God. Now, why are those two statements so significant? Because John has already given us hints in his gospel that under the providence of God, people often say things that they don't fully understand. And by embedding these two statements in the crucifixion narrative, in the foundation of the crucifixion narrative, it's almost as though John the artist, John the portrait painter, is saying, now, just watch those two statements, because they're actually keys to what I'm about to describe. And I say that for this reason, that John is writing this against, uh, against the background of the whole history of humankind. He's very conscious that uh, the first man, Adam, was created to be a son, a child of God, and that although they don't understand that this is what they're saying, what is being said here is, as, as these two different groups who are involved in the trial of Jesus tell us who Jesus is, 
They are, in a sense, saying, uh, that man, that first man failed. That man who was created in order to be a child of God, a son of God, and to live in fellowship with God as his heavenly Father and love him and serve him as his heavenly Father and have this family and uh, extend the little kingdom that God gave to him and lead the whole creation in worship. That man, behold the man, as he is banished from the Garden of Eden. And behold, the one who was created to be a son of God, as he is, as it were, banished from the family. And in that, in that role, the Bible indicates to us, Adam was essentially called to, to do three things. He was given dominion in order to be king over all creation. He was called to be the priest of all creation by leading all creation in worship. And he was called to be the prophet of all creation because to give what might seem a trivial but actually a very important example, he was the one who, as the animals came past him one by one, said, giraffe, penguin, pig. And this was his ministry. He was created as the man, as God's human son for fellowship with him, and he was, he was given these three tasks to be the king, to be the priest, to be the prophet of God as he led the whole creation in, in worship and praise and service of God. And in every single one of these ministries or offices, he failed disastrously, and he was banished from the presence of God. And now as we see Jesus beaten, humiliated, exposed, almost certainly stripped naked and taken to the cross, ringing in our ears are the words, the Son of God, and behold, the man. And we see this in a marvelous way. We can't go into the details, but we, we see this in a marvelous way as John walks us through what happens in the crucifixion of Jesus. First of all, in verses 19 to 22, in Pilate's writing, it's so obvious here. Uh, the Roman authorities characteristically would make public what the charge was for which the prisoner was being condemned. And either uh, one of the soldiers might carry it on a little placard as the condemned man was being led out for his judgment, in this case crucifixion, or as in this instance, it would actually be nailed to the, the tree, the, the, the cross. Uh, it seems almost certain that outside Jerusalem there were always poles standing there waiting for those who were to be crucified coming out with the crossbar, their individual crossbar on which they would be crucified on the standing pole. And uh, Pilate writes, the king 
of the Jews. He does it very deliberately. We noticed before, over and over again, he says, I find no fault in this man. He crucifies him, although he declares that Jesus is not guilty. It is, as it were, the, the clash between Roman law and truth. And it infuriates the Jews, absolutely infuriates them. And that's exactly what Pontius Pilate intended. All we know about Pontius Pilate outside the New Testament, the Egyptian writer Philo of Alexandria, I think I mentioned him last week, he was stubborn and he was vindictive. And this is Pilate in your face. You got me in the trial where, as it were, all Roman justice had crumbled before the machinations of the Jewish leaders. But I'm going to get you now. Kind of interesting illustration of how a man can be so weak in one area and so stubbornly strong in another, where his own reputation is at stake, where he's been bettered. And now Pilate is determined to get his own back and they have engineered this charge of treason. He has found him not guilty of the charge of treason, and yet he executes him. And so he has placarded, and you notice we're told by John very deliberately in all of the the languages of literate people in the ancient world, Aramaic, which was the, the common tongue locally, and Latin, which was the official language of Rome, but not the language that was spoken usually by Romans, and Greek, which was the, was the common tongue of the Mediterranean world for all the world to see. And John, John kind of delights in this. He's saying to us, do you see that although they don't understand what they're saying, They're actually speaking the truth about him, that this is the king, and they are dethroning him. But the reason this is part of the economy of God, and and you find this sense, did you notice in this passage, that, that whatever man is doing, God is doing something different that all of this is happening so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled, that God has not lost control, that this is not a tragedy, but this, as Peter says in the day of Pentecost, takes place, you crucified Him. But it was because of the purposes of God that that took place, that the King who has been dethroned has actually the true King who came to be dethroned in order that He being dethroned, men and women and young people like ourselves might be brought back into God's kingdom, and as Paul actually says in Romans 5, begin to experience life in which in Jesus Christ we begin to reign in grace. So you see the picture. The man was created to be king as well as son He's lost his crown. He's been banished from his kingdom. He's east of Eden. The world that he was called to love and serve has become a wilderness in so many ways. And now Jesus 
has come in our flesh. Behold the man who is the Son and who therefore is the King, and he in God's economy is being banished on the cross in order that we might be restored to God's kingdom. That is very interesting in this. You know, they, they want Pilate to change, and Pilate stubbornly got them. Now, Spirit says, what I've written, I've written. Now, we've, we've just kind of landed in, in, in John 19, but if we read John from the very beginning of this gospel, we would have seen that very verb used over and over and over and over again, I think about seven or eight times before this point. And it's always used in connection with the Word of God. And if you'd read it from the beginning, at least if you'd read it from the beginning as a Greek reader, that's what you would notice. That what Pilate is doing here, although he has no idea, is saying it's true because it's written and it's staying that way. So, first of all, there's Pilate's writing in verses 19 to 22. And then you'll notice that uh, it's as though the scene changes a little, and instead of, as it were, at a distance from the cross, we find ourselves at the foot of the cross, and John moves us on from uh, Pilate's writing to the soldiers gambling in verses 23 and 24, gambling in, with, a, with a small g, as it were. They are the execution squad of four um, who knows if they'd done this hundreds of times? There were occasions in Palestine where hundreds would be crucified simultaneously, or whether this was the first time. It's unimaginable, isn't it? What must you do to yourself emotionally to become the member of an execution squad where crucifixion is the method of execution? Uh, and the, the only compensation, unless you're a deep cynic, the only compensation is that whatever, whatever the, the one who was condemned owned becomes yours. And there are four of them in an execution squad, and they, they sit at the foot of the cross, and they, they share things round. So they're just sharing round the sandwiches. Incidentally, you notice that John actually pays almost no attention to the literary, literally excruciating details of crucifixion because he wants us to understand not so much the pain of crucifixion but the significance of this particular crucifixion. And then they come to Jesus' robe, this one-piece robe that John makes a point of referring to, this seamless robe. And, and he focuses on it. And it's interesting that at this point, uh, he says now, he says there are, there are these Old Testament Scriptures that tell us, uh, Psalm 22, one of the, the, the Psalm that Jesus actually quoted on the cross. It, it speaks to, to us about how the soldiers, how people would divide the suffering one's garments. And, and John says, having quoted Psalm 22, 18, he says, that's what the soldiers did. Um, but there's nothing in the psalm itself about this 
this garment that had no seams in it, that was woven from one, created from one piece of cloth. And he's drawing attention to it, this in particular. It's very important to him that the soldier said, let's not tear this to pieces, let's throw, let's, you know, let's throw lots on this, whether they used bones or whatever they used, perhaps fingers behind the back. Um, why is it so significant? Because, because in, in John's biblically crafted lenses, there is one figure in Israel's life who at a supreme moment wears a garment created from a single piece of cloth. And yes, it's the high priest as he goes to make the great sacrifice for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. And the Old Testament regulations about how he is to dress are very specific about the fact that he should wear this garment made of a single piece of cloth. So, in John's eyes, whatever the soldiers think, in John's eyes, it's not that this would have been an especially expensive garment that somebody might have given to Jesus. It's, the, it's what this garment is saying about Jesus and about what is happening here on the cross. It's as though like, a, like a, an, an art interpreter, he's saying to us as we look at this scene, do you look, look how that single cloth garment has been given a special attention in the artist's work. Why? And the answer is because of what turns this from a tragedy into a triumph. It is that Jesus is engaged here in a priestly ministry, and that what, what's happening here is that Jesus is the high priest coming with the sacrifice in order to bring and provide the forgiveness of the people's sins. But in this instance, the priest and the sacrifice are one and the same. And that this is what's happening. That this rude instrument of crucifixion is actually an altar on which Jesus is sacrificing Himself the other gospel writers pay attention to some of the dynamic of that, but it's clear in John's gospel, this, this is the central point in Jesus' priestly ministry. And this rude wooden cross has become, as it were, the mercy seat before God on which Jesus as high priest and sacrifices, shedding His own precious blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's interesting, isn't it, that when, uh, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, we're, we're told very deliberately they had no clothes on and they were completely unashamed. They were naked and they were unashamed. And in their nakedness they rebelled against God and needed to be covered. And now it's as though the Lord Jesus is being uncovered. His nakedness is being exposed. 
uh, the verse that uh, John Ferguson referred to earlier on from, from Hebrews chapter 12. The shame of the cross. He, he, he despised the shame. It doesn't mean he didn't feel the shame. It means he counted the shame as little by comparison with what tasting the shame would accomplish. Because the man who is the son, as it were, is, is breaking back through by taking our exile and now by bearing our sin in order to bring us back into the presence of God, in order to, be, to become members of the new humanity, true men and true women in Christ who, who now can come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the last uh, paragraph or so in the section that we have read moves from Pilate's writing to the soldiers gambling, and then in verses 25 to 30, to Jesus speaking. And we've been waiting for this since the very first word of the gospel. In the beginning was the word. So what's he going to say? And here, here if ever, uh, the words of Pontius Pilate are realized in Jesus' ministry as the speaking prophet. Behold the man. And look at, look at what he does. Uh, he says several things. He says more on the cross, but John focuses on three things. The first has to do with his mother Mary in verses 26 and 27. From the cross, woman. They're standing there. I had an older brother who died about 18 months after my dad died, many years ago now. And I, I have just this permanently embedded in me, this memory of watching my mother. But this is her son being crucified. This is the child of her womb. Jesus did not float down from heaven. Jesus came through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And this is the son of Mary, who is the son of God. And he he sees her. It's melting. Woman, behold your son. And you see what he does. Do you know what he's actually doing? Kind of bargain basement is he's, he's keeping the fifth commandment, isn't he? Honor your father and your mother. On the cross, he does not forget his father's original purpose that there should be this utter devotion within family life. And he, he hands her over to, I think, the Apostle John. He's not named the beloved disciple. And it doesn't mean that he was especially beloved, but that he was a disciple who was conscious that he was loved. And from that point on, we're told, the beloved disciple took Mary into his own home. You see, he's doing another very interesting thing. He's saying, uh, he's saying in a sense, dear, dear woman, that bond that you and I have had is a bond that I now break. And I now commit you into 
the everlasting family of which this man is a representative. I mean, it's such a, to me, it's such a lesson that Jesus folded Mary out of her natural family into the family of the church. Such a lesson for those of us who are parents, that that's, that's the Jesus thing to do, to fold our own family into the family of the church. And it's also an illustration, isn't it, of what John says at the beginning of the farewell discourse that we looked at years ago, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. She was one of his own, and he loves her to the end. You know that marvelous little poem of John Donne um, that begins, Whom God loves, he loves to the end, and not to their end and to their death, but to his end. And his end is that he might love them more. And this is Jesus loving his mother more in the words he speaks as, as the restored prophet. And then he speaks words that now the soldiers hear, I thirst. I thirst. You remember how earlier on in John's gospel, John very deliberately records words that aren't found anywhere else in the gospels where Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And now I think we're supposed to remember that he said these words, but now he is one who is in a dry, parched land, in a wilderness, where he has been abandoned by man, and the judgment of God is falling upon him, and there is nothing to drink. And it's how we can come to him when we are spiritually thirsty. It's because He is going into the wilderness where He will bear God's judgment against our sin, and there will be nothing to refresh Him. And He will cry out with this sense of God-forsakenness. But it's all because He speaks this word about His own thirst that we can be sure that He has taken our spiritual thirst, and He is able to give us to drink. And then in verse 30, so he speaks to those who love him. He speaks in a way that those who crucify him will hear. And then he speaks, I think, to his Father. It is finished. As you probably know, it's just one word in the Greek text, finished. That is to say, accomplished. It's language that has trailed him through the Gospels. He's come to do the work that the Father gave him to do. Uh, his earthly father was a carpenter, and you, can, you could almost imagine since uh, numbers of the people in Palestine spoke Greek as well as um, speaking Aramaic in Jesus' time, especially in Galilee. Uh, you can almost think of Jesus listening to Joseph at the end of the day, uh, putting his tools away and saying to Telestai, the work's done. And this is his word now to his father, Father, I've done everything that you, you gave me to do. And I think it's not insignificant that this was the evening of, uh, this is the evening of Saturday. 
the seventh day of the week about to dawn. And then actually, just as the beginning of the gospel takes us back to the very first chapter of Genesis, the high point in the gospel takes us back there, that Jesus has finished the working week. And because He's finished the working week, rest is going to be proclaimed to all the world because of all that He is doing here on the cross. And again, you see, the king has been exiled in order that we might be brought into the kingdom. The priest has been sacrificed that we might have the forgiveness of sins. And the prophet has now been silenced, but not before he has been able to proclaim the gospel. You know, that hymn of Wesley, "'Tis finished, the Messiah dies." cut off for sins, but not His own. Completed is the sacrifice. The great redeeming work is done. Yes, finished. All the debt is paid. Justice divine is satisfied. The grand and full atonement made. God for a guilty world has died. That's why we sing, lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Now we're out of time, but I want to make this point, because there are still many people who read this kind of thing in the New Testament and turn away and say, um, I'll work my own way back to God, and He will accept me. I'm, I'm actually doing pretty much, I think, better than most of the people around me. I, 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 don't, I don't need a Savior. My friend, here is the strongest conceivable argument against that. Why is God ordaining this for His Son if you don't actually need it? I cannot imagine what it would be to stand before the God who has prepared this for our salvation and saying to Him, I decided I would do it my own way. Because the answer to that today is, if you can do it your own way, why do you think He needed to do it this way? So this is a great picture of Jesus that's being set before us, doing everything that we need to be brought back to where we were created to belong as children of the living God, as people who reign through Jesus' grace, as people who understand uh, what it means to come into His presence with joy and worship Him, and as people who have this word of the gospel put on our lips in order to share with others. Oh, yes, hallelujah. This, this may be the most fundamental test of where I am spiritually. Is there something here that makes me say, Hallelujah, what a Savior, because He's mine. He's mine. Our Heavenly Father, how can we ever thank You enough for the way in which You have poured 
your love out for us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and then sent your Holy Spirit to us to work in our minds and our affections and our understanding that we might want to look at this and say, what a Savior He is, and to think that He is my Savior too. Oh, bring us to this, we ask, because we are so cool and helpless in ourselves that we may see what's in the portrait and trust Him and give our lives to Him. And we pray this in His name. Amen.